Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I am pleased to welcome back my guest, writer, director, film historian, Jim Hemphill. Jim, how are you, buddy? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. Now, very long-time listeners will know that Jim Hemphill was the very first guest to ever be featured on this podcast, going all the way back to early 2014. And what a ride it's been for both of us since then. So, Jim, uh, before we even get started on the episode, it's been a little while since you've been on the show. Can we just update the the listeners on uh, on what you're doing, what's going on in your world these days? Well, most of what I've been doing lately is writing for IndieWire, which is kind of a new thing. I started writing for them back in December and kind of moved into full-time craft recording for them in March, which means I basically write about cinematography and stunts and costumes and editing and sound design, all the different filmmaking crafts. So I've been doing a lot of that. Uh, and I've also continued to record some historical audio commentaries for Blu-rays. I've got one coming out in July for the Robert Benton movie, Nobody's Fool with Paul Newman that came out in 1994. Um, I was really, really enjoyed that one. Um, and uh, yeah, that's the main stuff I'm doing and just sort of, as always, kind of tinkering around with writing one of these days, planning on making another independent film, hopefully this year. We'll see. I feel like I probably say that every year, but it's... Uh, uh, yeah, that's that's basically what I'm up to. No, that's awesome. And and for for our new listeners, Jim, you also have uh, done quite a few um, Q and A's at the New Beverly Cinema. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Yeah, I've got a, actually got a couple coming up. I don't know when this is going to air if it'll air in time, but I will. I it's I think on June uh, 20th and 21st, I'm doing a couple of Q and A's for Pride Month. The New Beverly is showing uh, the incredibly true adventures of two girls in love and high art and. Uh, What's the other one that I'm that I'm doing? Oh, my gosh. All over me. Uh, anyway, they're showing some of that stuff and the producers are going to be there and I'm going to do Q&A's for that. Um, I don't know if there'll be any other stuff coming up at the new Bev. But uh, yeah, that's also one of my fun side gigs is uh, doing Q&A's at Quentin Tarantino's theater. That's awesome. I can't wait. One of these days, I, I mean, I feel like the world's starting to get a little bit back to normal. So one of these days, I'm definitely going to go out there and uh, uh, frame the entire trip around an opportunity to go to one of these these Q&As. So, so Jim, the idea for this episode, you know, the title, I haven't really come up with the title yet, but basically it's 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 practical effects, action movies with nothing but practical effects. This really came to me after watching Top Gun Maverick twice now and to, to know me to know i don't go to the theater that often anymore and i certainly don't go see a movie twice in theater especially if it's you know looking at a 45 day release window for a streaming platform but i was so blown away by what i was seeing on the screen in regards to top gun maverick that it made me sort of yearn for a time when what you were seeing on camera was really happening. What you were seeing in camera was really happening. So I do want to pose a question to you, but before I ask that question, I'd love to hear you know your your quick thoughts on Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, I thought it was terrific, and I was quite shocked, actually, how much I liked it, because unlike a lot of people I know, like you, I know you were waiting for it to come out for years, and it was killing you every time they postponed it. I wasn't somebody who was waiting for that movie. I thought it was kind of ridiculous to do a sequel to Top Gun 30 years after the fact. I honestly... Uh, will will freely admit I was wrong um, in thinking that there was just it just was kind of pointless, um, and I actually thought it was it was terrific, and I think it it does it, the fact that it's so popular and so beloved right now uh, across such a wide swath of demographics speaks to I think the fact that there is still. You know, at the end of the day, I mean, I'm all for innovation and I'm all for movies evolving and all of that. But I do think there's something to be said for a lot of the really traditional pleasures of movie going. And Maverick is that not just in terms of the fact that 
a lot of the effects are practical, but just even the, the just the basic storytelling, it's kind of an uncluttered, straightforward kind of kind of you know kind of old fashioned character driven spectacle movie um, in a way that you know I feel like a lot of the movies. I don't want to start my usual thing of dissing comic book movies and all that stuff because there's a lot of comic book movies I love, but you know, compared to something like say Dr. Strange and the multiverse of madness or whatever it was called, you know, that was a movie where in the third act, whatever, I just felt like I was just looking at a bunch of clutter. Like I really stopped caring about what was going on because I just felt like it was so, I was being so buried in confusion and chaos. And there's this kind of clean clarity and emotional straightforwardness to Top Gun Maverick that I think is really appealing. And that I think is just, you know, the fact that that movie's so popular just kind of shows it's never going to go out of style, I don't think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought it was great. I thought it was a real testament to Cruz's star power and his kind of genius as a producer, you know, that he is kind of what sort of the last man standing, keeping these kind of movies alive. And uh, yeah, I was, I really, you know, objectively speaking, I liked it probably more than the original. I mean, I think, I don't think it's as well directed as the original. I think Tony Scott is, you know, really truly unique brilliant director and i think directorially i think the original is superior but i actually think in terms of the scripts you know i've always found the original to be kind of hokey frankly and i thought this one was a little bit more sophisticated and i thought the director joseph kaczynski did a great job of paying tribute to what tony scott did without it just feeling like a kind of lame imitation as opposed to like you know, I just saw the new Jurassic World movie, which I feel like you could almost call the anti-Maverick. I mean, it's kind of like everything that Maverick does right in terms of making all the callbacks feel genuine and organic and all that stuff. You know, Jurassic World is just a total disaster. It's just like one, like the way they bring the, the original cast members back. And it's just so completely lame as opposed to if you think about the way Maverick handles Val Kilmer or something like that. I just, yeah. thought, I just thought they did everything right. I thought it was really, really impeccably calibrated. And I, I mentioned this on uh, on my review of Top Gun Maverick, the episode that we did uh, a couple weeks ago. And I just want to sort of reiterate that a couple examples of the movie where uh, you, you mentioned the callbacks. And I like the fact that both Tom Cruise and uh, Joseph Kaczynski, Joseph Kaczynski um, knows not to spoon feed callbacks. And two examples. Number one, in the original Top Gun, there are two times where Maverick says he's going to hit the brakes. He's going to hit the brakes and they're going to fly right, out, right, fly right over us. In the movie Top Gun Maverick, he does that twice without ever telling you what he's doing because he knows the audience is probably going to be sophisticated enough to pick up on that. And also the, the flyby at the end on, on the aircraft carrier doesn't say requesting a flyby, just does it. And these are callbacks that I think are, are, are important enough that the audience, like Top Gun diehard Top Gun fans are going to understand what those are without it being, you know, beat over the head. Hey, remember this? So just little things like that. So I, I agree with you. Absolutely. Yeah, they were all earned. I mean, I felt like all the callbacks, again, they felt like they grew organically out of the story and were earned. And it wasn't just like, again, to use the example of uh, Doctor Strange, the Multiverse of Madness. In that movie, when they bring back, you know, there's the scene in that movie where they bring back the, you know, various characters from other marvel movies it's like that and it's like there's this sort of weird self-congratulatory aspect where just because they're showing you those people you're supposed to get excited and clap and have this pavlovian response and i i just can't i'm so tired of that stuff like i'm so i just couldn't be more sick of it and i was really again i just think it was really clever how maverick gave those satisfactions but did it in a way that didn't feel cheap the the way that it does in most movies 
I'm just going to take your word for it on movies like Jurassic Park Dominion, on movies like Doctor Strange, because, I, I mean, unless I happen to come across one of these on a Peacock or Disney Plus, you know, months down the road, I, I'm in no hurry to, to see either of those films for a lot of what you said. Like I had, uh, for me, Jurassic Park stops at the original. That's still, I think, the superior film of the entire lot. And that T-Rex scene is still one of the most suspenseful scenes in cinema history. So, Jim, I have a question for you before we get into our our top 10 list of practical action films. Speaking of just how big and popular Maverick is, I'm going to ask this question. Why does Hollywood need to make more practical blockbusters? Well, first of all, let me say I'm not an absolutist about this. I'm not one of these people who thinks, you know, only practical is great and CGI all sucks. And in fact, I think... The best filmmaking, a lot of it is knowing how to use them both together in a way that's, you know, that's what Christopher Nolan does. I mean, Nolan is largely practical, but there's always some digital augmentation in his movies. Same thing with Maverick. I mean, Maverick is is a lot of practical stuff, but they're also you look at the credits for that movie. There's a few hundred digital effects artists in it, on it. I mean, there's so I'm so I'm all for doing it if I'm all for basically doing the right solution. But to answer your question, I think that. What you get from practical effects that you don't get from digital is the unexpected and the unique. And what I mean by that is if you have a scene where a car is going to fly off a bridge, if you create that by CGI, it's never going to look any different than how it looked in your first storyboard. You're going to storyboard it. You're not going to be, it's going to, you know, and that's fine maybe. But if you actually drive the car off the bridge, it might do something that you didn't expect and it might do something that gives you a more spectacular stunt or at least a different one that doesn't look like every other movie. I mean, that's, I think, you know, I'm sure people who have been going to a lot, if you do go to a lot of those comic book movies and franchise movies and all that kind of stuff, you start to notice that when a bridge collapses, the bridge collapsing looks the same in every movie. And that's because they're all using the same software and, and, and it's a lot of the same technicians. And I think, and it's also, you know, it's when you do it, you know, you look at these credits and again, even a movie like Top Gun Maverick, which is relatively light on digital effects compared to, say, a Marvel movie, still has several hundreds, you know, digital effects artists on it. And so if you're a director, that's a lot of people to try to manage and control and to keep your, for lack of a better word, vision consistent. And so what happens is I think there's kind of a blanding out a little bit when everything is CG. And I think there's a certain degree to which, I mean, there's a sort of, the funny thing is there's a sort of myth. I think people mistakenly think it's more expensive somehow to do things practical. And that's actually not true. I mean, if that was true, uh, if it was true that CGI was cheaper, movies would be getting cheaper instead of more expensive. And they're, they're getting more expensive. It's actually, it's actually more expensive to do things CG in a lot of cases. But I think I think studios and financiers like CG because it takes out a little bit of the element of risk. And, but that element of risk is also what makes for great movies. And all the movies that we're going to talk about today are movies that have moments that came about that weren't necessarily planned or if they were planned, I mean, you have to obviously you have to plan your stunts and things like that. But again, you're going to get, if, if you're shooting something like Top Gun Maverick, and you're mounting cameras to the planes and you're actually flying planes and shooting what's happening, you know, then it's it's going to be respond in, in the same way that you uh, just any any kind of filmmaking. If you leave yourself open, you know, just I mean, 
random example, you know, the graduate, the final shot of the graduate, that's like one of the most famous endings of all time was a mistake. It was, they couldn't hear the, the remote, you know, they couldn't hear that Mike Nichols saying cut. And so they left the shot going and that ended up, the actors ended up having this uncertainty that was actually just them, but it ended up becoming the uncertainty of the characters and became one of the great final shots of all time. And that kind of thing can happen with stunts and effects. And that's why I think you want more of it. Other, otherwise, if you if you give up practical effects, then again, I do think things are going to sort of look the same and have a sort of more sterile quality. That would be my argument for it. I think that's brilliant. No, it's absolutely brilliant. And I guess I know, I, you know, I've been, I don't want to say I've been on my high horse for the past few years talking about, you know, CGI and I'm just, I'm done with it. I agree with everything you said as far as it, you know, being used to augment, you know, a good example for that is uh, Mad Max Fury Road. You know, there's some incredible stunt work in that one. Obviously there's this clear CGI. I mean, just the sandstorm sequence alone is pure CGI. My my complaint about uh, all of this really stems from I'm I'm over the, the, the franchises, the sequels, the prequels, the remakes, the never ending stories. The, the, you know, one of the things I loved about Top Gun had a beginning, middle, satisfactory ending. I didn't have to stick around for an end credit sequence because I knew there wasn't going to be one. My hope is they leave it alone, but, you know, I also know the business of Hollywood and, you know, I'm sure if it's up to Tom, as long as Tom's around, he may leave it alone. He's got other things going on. So I agree with everything you said there. We wanted to do our top 10 practical action films. So we set some parameters. Okay. So unfortunately, Lawrence of Arabia is not going to make this list because we said... I well at least I set the parameters as 1970s and above, okay. And I there was some question on whether or not we were going to allow any CGI augmentation, anything like that. I, I think we really try to go as pure as we can. So listeners out there, if I mention one movie and you come back and be like, oh no, there's definitely a little CGI in there, okay. But where it wasn't used as the main filmmaking tool is where it was everything was in camera i guess that's where i'm going with what we're going to do is we've each put together our our top 10 now i want to say for the record that a month from now this top 10 list would probably change because this was incredibly difficult to put together as of today recording june 12th 2022 these were the top 10 practical effects action movies that i put together and jim put a list together of his 10 now what we're going to do in case we have any crossover is if I say, Jim, what's your number six? And he says the the name of the movie and it's higher up on my list. I will say that's higher up on my list. We're going to shelve that until we get to it on my list and vice versa. So, Jim, you have any questions before we get going? No, I, I, I would just reiterate the same thing as you. These lists are always, they're fun, but always completely arbitrary. Yes. And it could, I could on a different day pick, I mean, I think my top four would probably always be, probably stay the same, but I think below that, there are literally a hundred movies that could have gone yeah. on here. And, uh, and it's funny that you brought up the Lawrence of Arabia not being on, because I did have a note that just, you know, Lawrence to basically to say, um, you know, Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia and Buster Keaton's the general, if this was a full history of cinema list would both clearly be at the top. Those yeah. are, you know, to probably the two best, but, uh, yeah, sticking with the 1970 parameters. And I, and I made myself another rule, which will probably kind of come up as I talk about these, which is I, I lit in order to, keep this somewhat manageable uh i did not repeat directors or really to a certain degree even stars it was like you know there's not going to be five clint eastwood movies on here or, or you know what i mean I, or or three burt reynolds or anything like that i tried to uh just pick one of each that but that was that was just my own personal uh limitation i created i'm just quickly scanning my list real quick and i don't believe that i have duplicate directors 
I may have a director that was a director of photography on a movie, but we'll leave that. We'll, we'll see. You'll, I'm sure you probably even know what I'm talking about when I say that. So, Jim, since you're the guest, I'm going to let you kick off the top 10 practical action films with your number 10. Okay. My number 10 is Shakedown from 1988. Uh, this is a movie starring Peter Weller and Sam Elliott that was written and directed by James Glickenhaus. Uh, Glickenhaus is kind of an unsung figure of 80s filmmaking. I mean, he did a lot of exploitation movies. He did a very nasty movie called The Exterminator in 1980 that was kind of a death wish ripoff. Um, and he did a, a really good action movie called The Soldier with Ken Wall. Anyway, Shakedown is really his masterpiece. Shakedown is a movie... Uh, with Peter Weller as this kind of idealistic public defender and Sam Elliott as an idealistic but washed up cop who kind of take on this very corrupt group of policemen in, within the NYPD and, and the drug dealers that they're in cahoots with. And the reason Shakedown is on my list is because it has some extremely spectacular action sequences set in the heart of New York City. There's this great Times Square chase sequence where you've got in what looks like a Times Square where nothing has actually been blocked off. You've just got cars crashing and Sam Elliott swinging from these huge structures and, and motorcycle chases and all kinds of stuff. And there's a, and there's a fun uh, roller coaster stunt. There's a scene where a bad guy is on a roller coaster and they kind of unlatch it so that the roller coaster derails. Uh, and it's all done, you know, old school. It's 1988. So, you know, all old school stunts and miniatures, um, it has one kind of the, the reason it's my number 10, the reason it's at the bottom of the list is it does have one kind of hokey effect that doesn't work towards the end of the movie with Sam Elliott climbing on board this plane is about to take off and the uh, the rear projection work there is pretty unconvincing. But aside from that scene, it's a great uh, a great practical action movie and definitely and one that I think isn't necessarily all that well known today or well remembered. So Shakedown is my number 10. Well, that's interesting because one of the things that I was excited about having you on the show was I, I figured there would be a couple that I have not seen. And so Shakedown is on that list. And so uh, if there's nothing else on your list that I haven't seen, or, or I'm sorry, for, for the rest of your list, if I've seen everything else, then it'll be Shakedown that I watched tonight. That's excellent. All right, good pick. I'm, I'm all right. That's exciting. I like that. So my number 10 Look, I, we were just talking about Top Gun Maverick, and I think going with Top Gun would be the the easy pick. But, uh, you know, I sat down and rewatched this other movie about a month ago, and I have to tell you, for sort of being the Top Gun ripoff movie that was released the same year, I still am drawn to this film, and that is 1986's Iron Eagle, which is directed by Sidney J. Fury. I mean, I just briefly touched on it on my Top Gun review. Uh, quick synopsis of the film. You have Jason Gedrick, who plays Doug Masters, high school graduate. He's getting ready to graduate high school, lives on an Air Force base. His dad is a fighter pilot, Colonel Masters. His dad is shot down by an unnamed Middle Eastern country, taken prisoner, found guilty, he's going to be executed, and uh, Doug Masters feels like the Air Force is not doing enough to rescue his dad, along with uh, help from a uh, Air Force Reserve Colonel, Chappie Sinclair, paid ever so wonderfully by Louis Gossett Jr. They devise a plan to effectively hijack a couple F-16s, uh, go to the country, rescue his dad, and I don't want to say anything more than that. Look, this is 1986. There's no CGI in this film. There are practical effects. These are real F-16s, albeit Israeli F-16s, because the United States Air Force said you are absolutely not using ours after they read the script. But for my money, there is a race between a Cessna and a dirt bike. 
that is in the first 20 minutes of the movie that, in my opinion, is worth the price of admission alone. So, Jim, I know you've seen the movie, so I'm going to ask you two things. Number one, you remember seeing this in 86, and, and what were your thoughts on the film? Yeah, I did see it in the theater, and uh, and actually my memory is that at the time I preferred it to Top Gun. Yeah. I haven't seen it since then, so I'm not sure. Uh, I, 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 got, I Yeah, I don't think I've seen Iron Eagle since 86 when it came out, but uh, I loved it at the time, and it also has one of the great all-time theme songs by Queen. Yes. One Vision. One Vision, yeah. I rewatched this movie probably once a year. Now, obviously, it helps that it's on HBO Max now, so everyone listening, no excuse, watch it. It's... I saw Top Gun and Iron Eagle the same year, 86, 87, somewhere around there. I know it was on home video. And I, and just like you, like I favored as an eight-year-old, I definitely favored Iron Eagle over Top Gun at the time. It's a more ridiculous movie. It's super unrealistic, but you can't deny what's on screen. So that's why it's my number 10, Iron Eagle. All right. So you're number nine. My number nine is from 1990, so right on the cusp. I have a couple, I, several of my, my choices here are kind of late 80s, early 90s. I, I feel like, you know, even though digital effects were around, um, you know, I mean, Tron and, uh, you know, there was stuff in the early 80s that had digital effects and Young Shock Holmes or whatever. I feel like in a way the real cutoff point is 91 when you have Terminator 2. I think Terminator 2 is the movie that really shook it loose and from that point forward you know pretty quickly and then jurassic park obviously a couple of years later uh then it was no holds barred for digital effects but but from 1990 my number nine uh, both my number eight and number nine i feel like might be slightly controversial choices i know they're not universally beloved but my number nine is another 48 hours uh, uh directed hill. by walter hill and now I don't think this is what remotely one of Walter Hill's best movies. Um, I mean, it's not even anywhere near as good as the original 48 hours. However, the reason it is on this list is because I wanted it. It, it is a very clear illustration of what I was talking about earlier in the sense that there is a bus. Seat, there's a stunt in this movie where a bus flips and it is a stunt that went wrong. They didn't know how they didn't know how to do it exactly. They they had done this technique with cars before, where they would put these can sort of cannon things in the trunks of cars, these air cannons that would flip cars over. They had never put one in a bus, and so they put one in this bus and really jacked up all of its power. And the bus was expected to flip like once or twice, and it ended up flipping like seven or eight times. And it's this extremely spectacular stunt with this chase scene between motorcycles and a bus that flips. And uh, and it is an example. Again, that is something where if you'd done it CGI, you just would have done it. You would have planned it and it would look exactly how you planned it. In this case, they got something better than what they planned. And because it was real, it's more spectacular. And the movie as a whole is filled with great stunt work. It's got like motocross chases, a lot of fire stunts. There's this great shootout in a nightclub at the end that is just like this I think breaks some kind of record for broken glass on screen. And there's a great stunt with uh, Andrew Devoff, the bad guy, falling out of a building and landing on a like a truck full of like uh, water cooler, you know, uh, whatever they're called, bottles and stuff. And it, the movie's just kind of filled with inventive stunts that are all practical and all real. And again, have that sort of life in them that you don't get from CGI. I love this pick, Jim. I love this. Now, I will agree with you that 48 Hours is is the better movie. 
But if you're an action junkie, another 48 hours is the superior film. You, you know, you mentioned the bus flipping over. That becomes a an ongoing line that Reggie Hammond, he says, I've been on the bus that's flipped over 12 times. Then he says, I've been on the bus that flipped over 16 times. He just keeps referencing it, which you have to know wasn't in the original script until after right. that, that scene was shot. Uh, there's that hilarious scene where they're they're getting away on the bikes. They end up busting through a porno theater and just going right uh, up. Yes, yeah, I like, forgot that. That's one of the all-time great stunts is, uh, yeah, the motorcycle driving through the screen of a porno theater through a porno movie and into the audience. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just perfect. I, I love that movie. That's a great pick. Good. All right. So number nine and yours is another 48 hours. That's a strong recommendation for me too. I just love that movie. My number nine movie, we're going to go to 1984. For the longest time, the Guinness Book of World Records listed this as the vi- most violent film ever made, even though it had a PG-13 rating. Uh, it was directed by John Milius. Uh, it has an all-star cast. They weren't all-star at the time, but they have since become an all-star cast. Of course, I'm talking about 1984's Red Dawn. Now, for those who haven't seen Red Dawn, it was made at the height of the Cold War, and it just poses the question, what would happen if World War III broke out in your back door? I mean, we've got everyone from Patrick Swayze, C. Thomas Howell, uh, just the the list goes on and on. It's so funny to talk to you about this because I know you've probably seen this multiple times, but I'm trying to reach out to our younger listeners who have never seen it. I'm trying to sell them on this idea. This movie takes two minutes to get going and effectively never stops till the very end. And everything you see on screen is just wonderfully shot, framed well. It's very, very patriotic, you know, and I know that's kind of John Millius's thing, but there are a couple scenes in this mo- in this movie that I just think are unbelievably incredible. I'm, I'm thinking about the scene, mild, minor spoilers for this film, where the uh, the Russians have set a trap where they they've got some food and the and the Wolverines grab the food and then these big hind helicopters come out and just the way C. Thomas Howell goes out, just just a remarkable film from start to finish. What are your thoughts on Red Dawn? Well, I'm really glad you have this movie on your list because I don't have any John Milius on my list, but I I should. That's a bit that's a sort of glaring omission. I mean. Milius, I think, is so underrated these days. I mean, Milius, he's known, you know, he's known for writing the screenplay of Apocalypse Now, as he should be. It's one of the great American screenplays of all time. But he was a fantastic action director. I mean, his, you know, he did a, a, this great movie with Sean Connery, The Wind and the Lion, that is uh, just amazing. Red Dawn is great. Conan the Barbarian is great. Um Flight of the Intruder, another great practical effects movie that was kind of a Top Gun knockoff. But yeah, Milius is fantastic. And this movie... You know, there's certain aspects. It is a sort of it's an interesting movie because it's Red Dawn is simultaneously a kind of exaggerated comic book movie. And yet it does it with such conviction that it's quite terrifying, actually. I mean, it's a very it's a very scary movie, even though there's some ways in which, objectively speaking, it's very heightened. It's kind of ridiculous. But Milius just he directs it with such conviction and the performances are so great all across the board like you say all-star cast including my pal leah thompson i'm so sorry and, i mean I'm, as uh, soon as you said that i i, I was like <laughs> don't forget leah thompson dana don't forget yeah leah and, thompson. No, and, and it's uh and i no, i'm really glad you have this movie on your list because i think it's uh a truly great movie and you know speaking of the new beverly uh you know tarantino shows this every fourth of july um <laughs> red dawn it's it's that's, that's they're always the new beverly's fourth of july screening and uh, and i agree it's it's beautifully beautifully made i think like any anyone who's an aspiring filmmaker or film student you can learn how to make movies from watching john Milius movies the guy was an amazing just amazing director in terms of his command of the frame and red dawn is maybe uh, you know i don't know i don't want to say it's necessarily his best movie he's got a lot of great movies but it's very special and um 
whether or not you agree with its its politics, uh, it's it's yeah, it's a fantastic movie. I think it's incredibly rewatchable even now. I put it back. I put it on a week ago in preparation for this list, or three or four days ago, and 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 was I've seen it multiple times and was still riveted by by the film. Not to go on a complete side tangent here, um, I do want the record to show that in 2012 they made a remake of this film, and I made it approximately 37 minutes into the film before I excused myself from the theater because they missed the complete mark on on what the original was about. There's a scene in the Red Dawn remake where the Wolverines, which is the, the nickname for the Freedom Fighters, they, they go into a Subway sandwich shop, which is open and has customers, and they proceed to essentially rob the Subway sandwich of, for, of food. There's a line where he says, all right, sandwich artist, fill up the bag. And that was it. That was it. Jim, I was out. I said, <laughs> I can't do this. I can't do this. Did you see that movie? Uh, I saw it, but I honestly... I don't have any memory at all of it or even whether whether I liked it or not. It just it clearly uh, did not stay with me for whatever reason. I know I saw it, but I don't remember anything about it. Okay, so that was my number nine. Jim, we're on to your number eight. My number eight is another film from 1990, the end of 1990. And it is uh, Clint Eastwood's The Rookie. And this was a movie that is on my list. Again, I'm not going to say it's the best Clint Eastwood movie. It's not necessarily as far as even... The, the Clint Eastwood action movies of that era, you know, I, The Gauntlet is a better movie. Sudden Impact is probably a better movie. But I chose The Rookie because it's kind of the last of the old school Eastwood action movies right before the CG takeover began. And it's got some it's a movie where Eastwood and Charlie Sheen play uh, these cops who are trying to catch Raul Julia. He's like the head of this kind of stolen car ring. And so there's a lot of great car stuff. There's a car chase that opens the movie with a car carrier that keeps like dumping its cars on the freeway. And Michael Bay kind of riffed on it for bad boys too. Uh, but uh, in that one, there's some digital augmentation, the rookie, it's all practical. It's all again, real cars on a real freeway along with some miniature work and stuff like that. Um, there's some great, there's a, a great climactic shootout at an airport that's got, again, some great miniature work with planes crashing into each other and exploding and stuff like that. Um, and then just scattered throughout the movie, a lot of great action. And this was kind of like, you know, I, I don't know, again, for younger listeners, I, you know, I hate sounding like an old man saying this kind of stuff, but, you know, I, it's hard to overstate the influence that Clint Eastwood had in the seventies and eighties. I mean, basically the kind of, you know, his was the dominant mode of action filmmaking in the 70s and 80s. You know, Dirty Harry really kind of, in my opinion, kicked off the modern age of the American action movie that included things like 48 Hours, Lethal Weapon and all that kind of stuff. And, and Eastwood kind of created it. And The Rookie was like his sort of last hurrah and his goodbye to that genre. The next movie he would make after it would be Unforgiven, which kind of kicked off this whole second phase of his career that's very different and very interesting. But, um, you know, I think the rookie, as far as just like a very old school stunt and miniature dominated action movie, uh, is a lot of fun. I am, I am sorry to say that this one, this one fell through the cracks for me. So I'm actually really excited to, to see this one. How's Charlie Sheen in this movie? I mean, I think he's, you know, he's great doing Charlie Sheen. I mean, the whole thing is it's, you know, Again, it's very I, I can understand a little bit why people don't like it, because it's very cliche. It's the old cop and the young, yeah. you know, upstart and and that whole thing. But I think the two of them are both terrific in it. And you've got a great, you know, speaking of Top Gun, you got Tom Skerritt in it. You've got, you know, Lara Flynn Boyle, 
fresh off of Twin Peaks. You've got, you know, and then a lot of like, the and, you know, of some very bizarre villain performances by Raul Julia and Sonia Braga, Raul Julia and Sonia Braga playing Germans inexplicably. Um, and it's got very, you know, it's also, this doesn't really have anything to do with the practical stunt uh, and action component, but it's kind of an interesting movie. You know, something that's interesting about Clint Eastwood as a movie star is, again, he you can't really overstate like in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, you basically had Clint Eastwood and Burt Reynolds. And, and then I guess to a certain degree, John Travolta, like those three guys ruled the world. They were, you know, bigger than Cruz now. And Eastwood, the interesting thing about him of those three guys uh, is Eastwood went in some very weird, dark places with his star persona, like he and, and very like sort of kinky areas. Like he did this movie called Tightrope in 1983, yeah. That's a great movie where he plays like a cop who's searching for like a killer that's like involved in like, in like the S and M clubs and stuff. And, and it's, it's got some very interesting, but it's like these, this world that Eastwood's character has been in as a kind of customer. And so there's like these weird scenes with him, like all oiled up with these prostitutes and stuff. Anyway, the, what this all leads me to with the rookie um, action aside, it's got this great sequence where Sonia Braga kidnaps and rapes Clint Eastwood. Uh, that is one of the truly bizarre moments for a major movie star to have ever done in a big American studio movie and is uh, well worth checking out. And the funny thing is I thought at the time Eastwood was getting a little bit long in the tooth for that kind of scene. And that was 1990. And <laughs> he's still doing stuff like that in the mule and cry macho, like the mule, he has a threesome, in, you know? So, so Eastwood is uh, definitely the most sexually, uh, I don't know, adventurous and active of the major movie stars in Hollywood, I think. I Sort of a tangent there, but... Well, common theme for me uh, throughout this episode will probably be, don't you long for a time when a studio would take a chance on a movie like this? Oh, wait till you get to my... Yeah, when you get to my number one, the number one choice on my list is a movie that in a million years would never be made. Okay, uh, two other things. One, Raul Julia's, I guess his swan song would, after post... The rookie would have to be the Adams Family movies, correct? Mm -hmm. Because we don't we pretend like he was never in Street Fighter, right? That's like we just pretend that that never happened, correct? <laughs> uh, you know, I I'm I'm neither here nor there on Street Fighter. I don't I don't have any strong feelings about it, but it's, but certainly the Adams Family were probably his last great performances okay. that I can think of. I love that. Well, that's a great one. All right, so the rookie has now taken uh, taken over Shakedown as the film that I will watch tonight. Now I'll go through every one that I haven't seen over the next couple of weeks, but the rookie you've definitely piqued my interest on that one. My number eight is just barely getting into the uh, into the, the cutoff period. It's from 1971, and it is a movie called Duel, which is a made for TV movie directed by Steven Spielberg. It is. I guess I think it's safe to say it's the movie that kind of introduces the world to Steven Spielberg. I mean, it was a television made for television, got a theatrical release, you know, around the world in Europe and other parts. Um, it's only like 77 minutes long, the original cut of the film. I think they extended it to about 90 minutes for its theatrical release. It's incredibly simple in its premise. Demnis Weaver, traveling salesman on his way home crossing through, I guess, the Arizona into California, uh, begins to be menaced by a unseen driver of an oil tanker truck. And it's basically just a cat and mouse till the very end, made for under $500,000. I mean, this is a period, uh, maybe you can speak to this better than I can, but this was a period where, you know, TV movies of the week were, were big business. 
And so I challenge anyone to watch this movie in 2022, and I promise you, you are going to be on the edge of your seat. I know you've seen this film. I wonder if you could just speak to a little bit about the the filmmaking techniques that Spielberg employed, sort of introduced, and what makes this movie so special. Yeah, I mean, this is another one that is kind of like what I was saying about Milius and how you can learn how to make movies from watching John Milius. You can learn how to make movies from watching Duel, too. I mean, this movie and and, and the simplicity of it that you talk about is is kind of what makes it in a way a great case study to study for filmmaking because it is all in the delivery. I mean, it's a good script, obviously, but what makes it is Spielberg's execution and Spielberg. It, it is it, there's just the way he personalizes the truck. Like you never see, I don't think the driver of the truck that's pursuing Dennis Weaver. Like maybe you see his arm hanging out or something and that's about it. But somehow this truck becomes like the shark in jaws or something like it is the monster. And, you know, you're right. These TV movies in this era were huge and there's quite a few really good ones. Um, And, you know, there's, there's John Carpenter did one called someone's watching me a few years later. That's a really solid little thriller. Um, It was kind of a, it was kind of a, a training ground in that period. And they, and these movies were seen by, Everybody. I mean, Duel was a movie that I don't have the numbers in front of me about how many tens of millions of people watched it when it aired. But, you know, this was an era when there were three networks. And so, you know, a third of the country was watching Duel that night. But it's it's it is a movie. Yeah, I, I highly recommend to people if they can get their hands on the Blu-ray or I think there's even a 4K edition that's coming out if it's not already. And the Blu-ray has like a great making of documentary that kind of goes into how Spielberg assembled it and how he storyboarded it and everything. And um, it is it's one of those movies that just takes the audience in the palm of its hand and squeezes for an hour and a half, or as you yeah. put it, 77 minutes, whatever the, whatever the running time is. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm really glad you have this on your list. I did. I forgot to put it on mine, but it is, um, you know, I, and I don't remember what the shooting schedule, the shooting schedule on it was something insane. Like he shot it in not, I don't know what, how many days it was, but it was maybe some, maybe something like 15 days. Right. Yeah, I've got it right here in front of me. 13 days. 13. Yeah. Three days so longer than the scheduled 10 days. Yeah. He sh- exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He shot in 13 days. I mean, that's, that's two incredible. days more than the shooting schedule I had for a movie about two people who never leave a restaurant. <laughs> so he shot, I mean, that is, it's unbelievable that he, he did that, but yeah, it's, uh, it's great. And it's, and it's, and it's kind of an amazing movie because you can see, you know, everything that was going to make Spielberg Spielberg was there from the beginning. I mean, from this, you know, this movie that he made when he was in his early 20s. Yeah, I was going to say, lest we forget, he was 22, 23 years old. You know, he, he's coming off of directing an episode he, of Night he, Gallery. He, he does, for the record, lie about his age. So I'm not sure exactly how old he was. There's this sort of mythology really? around Spielberg. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah, there's a great Joseph McBride biography. Joe McBride kind of did some detective work and went into, and kind of debunks a lot of the Spielberg myths. You know, Spielberg is like a great, uh, he's almost as great a self mythologizer as he is director. And uh, there's a lot of these Spielberg myths about him, like sneaking onto the universal lot and stuff like that, that aren't really true. And McBride kind <laughs> of debunks all of them in this book um, that I, which I highly recommend for anybody who's a Spielberg fan. One, one more time, is, the name of the book, 
uh, it was, it's, I think it's just called, uh, it's just called Steven Spielberg, a biography. And it's by a guy named Joseph McBride who writes the best books on directors. This guy, he used to, he started out in the seventies as a screen going off on a tangent here, but McBride started off in the seventies as a screenwriter. He was one of the screenwriters of rock and roll high school and ended up falling into this career as a film historian. And he's written books on Spielberg and Billy Wilder and Ernst Lubitsch and the Coen brothers. And he's a very scrupulous researcher and analyzer of film. And that book on Spielberg is one of the best books I've ever read on a director. Oh. And um, it's a book that acknowledges all of Spielberg's great gifts and everything, but also kind of uh, calls him out a little bit for some of the the myth making that he participated in. And so we it, and I don't remember exactly how old Spielberg is, but he's he's a few years older than he pretends he oh. is because he wanted to create this thing of like, oh, I was 19 when I was directing Joan Crawford and Night Gallery and stuff like that. And, uh, you, know, you know, you know, what? none of which takes away from the fact that the guy is one of the greatest directors it's ever been. And on his worst day uh, is better than ninety nine point nine percent of the people sure. who do this. I just so. want to say. A couple days ago, I was at a bar with a couple friends, and all of a sudden, I'm holding court around six or seven people, uh, telling the tales of Spielberg, telling the and that what I'm now realizing are the myths, and everyone just can't believe. I'm talking about the Universal Studios, uh, sneaking, spending the summer there. I'm talking about the Joan Crawford, how young he was. I'm going to get my hands on this book. I feel like it's, I'm. It's a, it's a great book uh, for all <laughs> kinds of reasons. It's got a lot of great stuff about like the making of Poltergeist and things like that. Like all these kind of, it's really good. Okay. Off record. Who directed Poltergeist? <laughs> uh, you know, this is, I think this is one of these things that, well, first of all, uh, you know, I, the thing about Poltergeist, and I just went and saw Poltergeist again about a week ago because they showed it at the new Beverly uh, and it's a great movie. And I think with Poltergeist, this whole, like, this whole question of who directed it and who didn't, um, is it's almost impossible to answer because I have actually talked to people who are in that movie and gotten different answers <laughs> on this. And I think really what it comes down to is I think Toby Hooper directed it, but Spielberg was a very involved, hands-on producer. I think Spielberg was there, you know, a lot of the time. He was, uh, you know, I, I, so I mean, I think, I think they're probably co-auteurs of the movie, basically. I don't think, but it's funny because if you talk, you can talk to some of the actors and they'll say, no, it's Toby Hooper. He directed it, whatever. Zelda Rubenstein's like, no, it was Spielberg. So who knows? I mean, then at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It's a great movie. It is a great movie. Uh, 40 years, you know, to celebrate its 40 year anniversary. And it's still great. But uh, I do think it's a movie that you can tell has you can see aspects of both of those directors. Like I think it has equally as much in common with the fun house as it does with jaws and ET, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, okay. you know, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's kind of one of those movies. There's certain movies that are like that, that I think, you know, it's, it's like how I think Bugsy is kind of equal parts, Barry Levinson, Warren Beatty and James Toback. Like there's, you know, not every movie is one man, one vision kind of thing. Gotcha. All right. I love it. I love it. All right. We're on to your number seven pick. My number seven is from 1978 Hooper with Burt Reynolds directed by Hal Needham. And uh, this was, I chose Hooper as opposed to Smokey and the Bandit because Hooper is actually kind of all about um, stunts and practical effects. I mean, it's a great movie. It's a great sort of celebrate, you know, for those who haven't seen it, Burt Reynolds plays a stunt man named Hooper. And the whole movie is kind of about this like stuntman lifestyle. It's about Hooper and his friends. And it's kind of about there's the making of this movie within the movie. 
uh, with Robert Klein playing a thinly veiled Peter Bogdanovich parody. Um, Burt Reynolds had made a couple movies with Bogdanovich, and I think at that point had kind of fallen out with him. And so Robert Klein plays this kind of like crazy parody <laughs> of Peter Bogdanovich that's very, very funny. Um, and Hooper has it's it's the fascinating thing about Hooper is that the whole movie they're constantly purporting to show you how these stunts are done. And then they do the stunts and they still kind of amaze you. You're kind of being amazed by the stunts, even as they are claiming to show you how it's done. And it's, and it's sort of like, it's this very self-referential movie um, where Burt Reynolds is playing. He's playing Adam West's stuntman. Adam West is in it as himself and Burt Reynolds. And there's this kind of running joke with Adam West, just always going to his trailer with models while Burt Reynolds goes <laughs> and does like basically the heavy lifting of his performance. But you watch this movie and you know that then when you see Burt Reynolds doing these stunts, that's somebody else. Like that's, <laughs> you know, Stanton Barrett or somebody is doing Burt Reynolds stunts. So it's got this really fun kind of self-referential aspect to it and the stunt. And it has this, um, the whole the whole kind of final act is built around this thing where Burt Reynolds and Jan Michael Vincent are going to do the greatest stunt that anyone's ever done. And so the last like 20 minutes of the movie is essentially this nonstop barrage of explosions and chases and crashes culminating in this incredible car jump. And it's all practical and it's all fantastic. And it's a really, really fun movie. Um, again, directed by Hal Needham, who I'm sure a lot of people know was Burt Reynolds, used to was Burt Reynolds stunt double and then, you know, became a director of these these many of these movies with Reynolds. And this one, you know, again, I'm not going to I'm not going to say I prefer it to Smokey and the Bandit, but I think it's it's such a great love letter to this type of filmmaking and it is a movie where you get one example after another, especially in that last 20 minutes or so of what I was talking about earlier of just seeing things that happen in a way you couldn't play. You, you're just never going to get CGI. It's never going to be that spontaneous. And, you, you know, the thing about CGI, and I'm not saying people should risk their lives for movies, but you just don't have the same sense of danger. It's like watch Hooper and you feel like people could have been killed making this yeah. movie. And um, that just, you know, I'm, again, I'm not saying that's good. You don't want anyone to die for a movie, but unquestionably, it's more exciting than something where, you know, Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans never left a green screen in Atlanta. Uh, I haven't seen Hooper in probably 25 years. I saw it one time a long time ago. I uh, probably didn't appreciate it as much as I would watching it today. So th this or watch or if I watched it today. So this will definitely get a, uh, a rewatch for me. A couple quick questions. What I do remember vaguely about the film is Burt Reynolds looks like he's having a great time making this movie. He is he is the the charming, affable Burt Reynolds, 100 percent. And then my question to you is this is. Is this the first of quite a few blank check movies for Hal Needham after the success of Smoking the Bandit, or is this all based on Burt yes. Reynolds? No, this is a great point. Is what well, was a blank check movie for Hal Needham and Burt Reynolds because they were coming off Smoking the Bandit, which you know uh, was in 1977. I mean, was you know the second biggest grosser next to Star Wars, I believe. I mean, yep. It was huge. And so Smoking the Man was a huge hit. So it was, and I have a couple, I have two uh, later on, I'll get to another blank check movie, but yeah. And, um, but Hooper is a, basically a blank check movie. And that's another part of the appeal is a, as you say, Burt Reynolds is clearly having the time of his life and it's infectious and B these guys were getting everything they wanted. And so the scale of it is massive. And the hilarious thing is that's built into the movie too. The Robert Klein character there's this whole running joke in that about 
how he keeps getting whatever he wants from the studio. And they're kind of like ridiculing him for it, but that's what Hal Needham and Burt Reynolds were getting it's at the same exact moment. It was, and so it's this kind of bigger is better filmmaking. It's not minimalist. And um, yeah, there's something to be said. I'm a, I, I, I love to see what directors do when they're doing their first movie after a huge hit, because that's when you, you know, the chains are off and you get to see what they, who they really are. And Hooper is kind of the ultimate Hal Needham, Burt Reynolds movie. I think you may have just come up with a great idea for a future episode of this podcast. Just keep that in the back of your pocket. I really like that. My number seven, we're going to go to 1991. Now, if we were just making a list of our favorite action films, another movie that came out in 1991 would have easily been on that list. And that, of course, would have been James Cameron's Terminator 2. But since we're trying to stay away from the CGI, and that is the movie that, as you would say, ushered in the standard um, right before Jurassic Park. I'm going to go with a movie that was uh, that has a James Cameron connection, uh, and it was directed by Catherine Bigelow. Of course, I'm talking about 1991's Point Break. Is this higher up we, on your list? Yes, we have our first double. <laughs> okay, all right. So we'll 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 just, we're just going to shelve it right now, and we're going to just going to go immediately on to your number six. Okay, my number six is uh, from William Friedkin, 1985, I believe, oh, To Live and Die in yeah. L.A. Great movie. Um, uh, so To Live and Die in L.A. is on the list. Now, Friedkin, of course, is known for car chases. He did one of the great car chases of all time in French Connection. Uh, he did another great one in Jade. Uh, he's probably got others that I'm forgetting about. But To Live and Die in L.A. has the granddaddy of car chases. Uh, even even by Friedkin standards, I think it's the, his best uh, car chase, which is uh, there's a sequence where they there's a car chase that goes the wrong way down an L.A. freeway at rush hour. And I don't know how they did it. I mean, I don't know how much it cost or how much time it took, but it is mind blowing to look at. And Tilda Dine L.A. in general is one of the great American films of the 80s. It's William Peterson and Willem Dafoe. Uh, William, William Peterson, you know, is an agent chasing Willem Dafoe is a counterfeiter and if you love action movies and you haven't seen To Live and Die in L.A., this thing, it's another one of those movies that starts off incredibly. We're like, Peterson is a Secret Service agent guarding the president. The movie starts off with this, like, assassination attempt on the president at the Beverly Hilton. It's great, uh, it, literally explosive sequence. And the movie just goes from there. And uh, tons of great, again, tons of great practical stunts, tons of great uh, practical car work. And that that chase sequence... Once you see William Peterson chase the guy onto the freeway, going up the, the ramp, going on the off ramp, uh, just get ready for like, I don't know how long it is, but 10 or so minutes of the most exciting stuff you've ever seen in a movie in your life. I could spend hours talking about William Freakin. I think I reached out to you a few months ago, back in October or something, when I mentioned that I picked up his autobiography and, and was uh, the Freakin connection. And I am obsessed with watching interviews with him on YouTube has got a wonderful archive of all kinds of interviews going all the way back to, you know, being interviewed on British television for the exorcist and everything. He's an interesting, interesting guy. He really is. He really is to live and die in LA is I've heard him say in interviews that he was trying to outdo the car chase sequence in the French connection in to live and die in LA. And I'm going to agree with you that he did it. One of the things about the French connection is, you know, he had real NYPD police officers working with him 
and they just kind of blocked off streets. And to know the story behind the French Connection car chase is to know that there wasn't really any permits allowed for for shooting a, for shooting that that sequence. I got to think in L.A. you're not getting away with uh, with shooting without permits like that. So to pull off what he did, it, it's incredible. It was my first introduction to to understanding what counterfeiting was, and and I always always ask the question about if you're counterfeiting money, why are you selling it? Why aren't you just keeping it for yourself? <laughs> but right, that was what I thought when I saw it as a kid too. Um, I do have a question. I just want to pull up. Uh, hang on, just a second. I just I've got a list here in front of me. One second here, listeners. I apologize. We are going to go a little. We'll go a little off topic from time to time. Um, I do want to ask this question, Jim. To live in Del- to live and die in LA is 1985. Looking at uh, Freakin's filmography post to live and die in LA. Is there anything that stands out above his earlier work? I'm just going to quickly go through this. Rampage, The Guardian, Blue Chips, Jade, Rules of Engagement, The Hunted, Bug, Killer Joe, and The Dead. Well, I'm not going to count The Devil because that's a documentary. Is there anything post To Live and Die in L.A. that's on that level? Um, I mean, I don't know if I've seen that anything is on the level of To Live and Die in L.A. However, I think The Hunted is also a very interesting uh, you know, that might have, I don't, there might have some digital work in that, but that's also a very interesting, like physical action movie. You know, the hunted's got tons of great, I remember it really stood out at the time it came out because it's got a lot of great fight sequences and action sequences that feel very grounded compared to, uh, the stuff that was coming out around the same time. And I, I think the hunted is a very good movie. I mean, I actually think Jade is a very interesting movie. Like that's, there's a whole other component of Friedkin's career you know, he's the car chase guy, but he's also got this interesting, like erotic thriller side that Jade is part of and cruising is part of cruising is like one of the great unjustly maligned movies of all time. Like that movie is fantastic. Um, but, you know, I think I think Jade, Jade, the only thing about Jade is you can tell they messed it, the ending of it is terrible. It's like a, it's like a great, great movie that has a horrible ending. And you can tell they never figured out how they wanted to end it and kind of messed around with it a lot. Um, you know, but I think all those movies you're mentioning, a lot of the post Sylvan Dinelay movies um they all have value they're all worth seeing but to live and die in la you know for me with friedkin if you want to if you want to see why friedkin is one of the greatest you watch french connection the exorcist sorcerer cruising to live and die in la like those are the five masterpieces i think uh sorcerer was a first time viewing for me uh late last year I that know. almost, I mean, it was between that and Tilden yeah. Dino from my list because Sorcerer's got a lot of great stuff too. There's an entire sequence in that movie the, involving the bridge that I, I just don't know how yeah. he, I don't know how he shot that. Yeah. I, I, I almost don't want to watch a documentary on how he fu- filmed that because it will take away from just the suspense of that scene. It's absolutely yeah. incredible. Um, yeah. I will say one final thought about Freakin'. I think Blue Chips is a very oh, interesting yeah, Blue movie. Chips is a, Blue Chips yeah. is a good movie, yeah. Which was 20 Definitely. years ahead of its time. I think mm-hmm. it, I think now more than ever I think people would really understand the the message behind that movie. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, as a big sports guy, I can tell you it, it's gotten way out of hand on the college sports level. So my number six movie. All right, there was no way I wasn't doing a list without one of the biggest action stars of the 1980s. The question was which one was I going to do, and I pondered on this one for a little while, Jim. I was back and forth because he had quite a few movies in the 1980s. Do I go with 1987's Predator? Well, I could, but the director of that already has another movie on my list. Do I go with Conan, the original Conan? That's a that's a fantastic movie. John Milius directed that. So I settled on one directed by Mark Lester, and that is probably my first introduction to Arnold Schwarzenegger, and that is Commando. 1985. What I love about these movies is 
the plots are very simple. They're very simplistic, all right? Arnold Schwarzenegger plays a retired military officer by the name of John Matrix. He has retired to the mountains of California to live a quiet life with his daughter, uh, 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 Alyssa Milano, a pre-Hughes the boss, who's the boss, Alyssa Milano, Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, his, his, uh, let me just say that again. Uh, the men from his unit are systematically being killed off. His daughter is kidnapped. He is being forced to, ki- you know, assassinate a president of a country and blah, blah. I mean, that's just, a, that's just how do we get to the action? Here's another example of a movie that opens up right away. And when I say this thing never slows down, it never slows down. It might be one of the tightest 90 minutes I've seen in any action film. Incredible stunt work. This movie goes, just to put this out, we have a chase down the mountain with a truck with no brakes. We have Arnold swinging from like these giant balloons in a shopping mall. We have him jumping out of an airplane that's taking off. This is just like in the first 30 minutes of the movie. Some great Arnold puns, great one-liners, and just... This is, you know, this is the height of 80s action movies where they never run out of ammo. Uh, any 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 injury is just a flesh wound. Uh, it's just, it's probably my first real introduction to Arnold Schwarzenegger. It was the ABC Sunday Night Movie of the Week all the time back in the 80s. Of course, it was a heavily edited version. It wasn't until the early 90s that I saw the complete, uncut, R-rated version of this film and was quite shocked at just how much more violent the movie was than what was being shown on network broadcast television. So, Commando definitely had to make my list. Your thoughts on Commando? Yeah, it's a great movie, and Mark Lester is another very, very underrated, great director. Um, I actually, uh, for people who are interested in Commando or Mark Lester, Google... Uh, Google my name and Commando and Mark Lester because I did an interview with him for Filmmaker Magazine about Commando. Uh, that's pretty interesting. And it's, uh, yeah, I agree with everything you said. And he's one of those directors who, the thing you get from Mark Lester is just this propulsive energy. And that's something that Commando has. You know, I mean, another movie that could easily have been on this list um, is the movie Mark Lester made before Commando, Firestarter, which, you know, they just did a terrible remake of. And, and the original um is another movie that's got quite a lot of great practical effects practical fire effects and all that kind of stuff but uh yeah i i, I can't i don't really have anything to add i agree with everything you said about commando it's, it's a it's a great movie and and um lean mean and delivers more per minute than just about any other action movie of that moment i think it's a perfect 1980s yeah time capsule action film from mm-hmm. from start to finish i i think yeah. it's just pure pure arnold i love that All right, so we're on to your number five. Number five is where we double up a little bit, and I have Point Break, Catherine Bigelow's movie from 1991 about uh, surfers who are also bank robbers, and Keanu Reeves is an undercover FBI agent who surfs to catch the bank robbers. And this movie is arguably my favorite action movie of all time for a number of reasons. I mean, I think, one first of all, it's an action movie with a philosophy And the philosophy comes through in the action. I mean, you know, this is a movie, every action sequence in this movie is tied to character and tied to this kind of ethos of Catherine Bigelow's. I mean, I think you can feel that like, you know, Catherine Bigelow is a director who is as in love with the rush of visceral action as these guys are that she's telling the story about. And there are things in this movie you talk about a movie where, I mean, and and this is a movie where sort of like what you were saying about Sorcerer. 
like I've actually kind of intentionally not ever read too much or watched making of stuff about this movie because I kind of don't want to know how they did stuff. I don't want the illusion shattered because Point Break is a movie where it almost never looks like it's stunt people doing this stuff. Yeah. Like it looks like it is Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves doing their own surfing. There's a scene where Patrick Swayze, you know, when, when they jump out of a plane, it looks like it's them. And I don't know how, I mean, and I'm, I'm, I can only assume it was because it's like, there's just these shots that don't, you know, there's a shot of Swayze from inside the plane yeah, and he jumps out jumps and he out. drops. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's him and I don't know, you know, the whole movie is just, um, it's the greatest. Again, if you want to learn how to make movies, watch the foot chase in point break where Keanu Reeves pursues Patrick Swayze in the Ronald Reagan suit, which, which right there again. Okay. The, the greatest, you want to you want to know why, why Catherine Bigelow is a great director when this whole idea in this movie of these guys, these bank guys, who rob banks with the masks of presidents. So you've got a scene of Keanu Reeves chasing Patrick Swayze dressed as Ronald Reagan. So you have literally Ronald Reagan rampaging through people's houses and then getting to a gas station and lighting a fire. I mean, like basically this all this allegorical metaphorical stuff <laughs> if you want to read into it about reaganomics and the oil in the 80s and all this stuff i mean i know this is probably some people are probably like come on you know but but it's there trust me and um yeah the stunt work in this movie is the greatest the action direction there's nobody who does it better than bigelow i mean uh and it is just it, it has a purity to it this movie that cannot be beat I um I mentioned when I it was on my list that uh, it did have a James Cameron con connection. Uh, Cameron and Bigelow were a, were a couple at the time when when she was making this film, and I believe he does. I don't know if he has a. I can't remember if it's a writing credit or an executive producing credit he, on the film. He executive he executive produced it, and I do think there's a degree to which he didn't he didn't have a lot of involvement with it creatively, but I think there was a kind of protection. I think she got resources and you know, from the studio that probably she wouldn't have had if Cameron didn't have his imprimatur on it. Um, yeah, he executive produced it. And then her next movie, Strange Days, he did co-write, which and that movie is, for people who haven't seen it, brilliant. incredible. Yeah. I mean, absolutely brilliant. Uh, way ahead of its time. And, yeah, and, and very ahead of its time. Doesn't get the, the, you know, that one begs a rewatch from everybody, Strange Days. Yeah. Uh, one more thing on um, Point Break is to take, to transport yourself back to 1991. Okay, to understand that Keanu Reeves is now one of our established action movie stars. I mean, we're all chomping at the bit to see the next John Wick movie next year. Remember this, everyone. This is Keanu Reeves coming off of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, coming off of a, a smart but small role in Parenthood. He is not an action movie star in this film. And dare I say, it's going to take one more movie to really solidify his action movie prowess. But you got to understand, this was a gamble putting him in the lead role. Would you agree? I, I would agree. And I would say it's part of Bigelow's greatness as a director. She, cause she kind of did the same thing even with Ray Fine in strange days. Like, and you could say, well, how much of it is a gamble putting Ray Fine in anything, but that was very unusual. Ray Fine and Angela Bassett as the leads yeah. in it as action heroes. That wasn't something anybody else would have thought of, you know, Bigelow is so aside from just her being a great technician, her casting instincts are incredible. And I do think with point break, there is a sort of, I think you get the best of all worlds. Like I'm not somebody who believes that, you know, women have to direct movies about women and men have to direct movies about men and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. But I think what you get in point break that's interesting is Bigelow 
she's got this kind of traditional Peckinpah-esque sensibility when it comes to action. But she you also are seeing these guys filtered through a woman's eyes. And I think like the sort of, in a good way, the objectification of Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze in this movie is a big part of its appeal too. Like I think she's, she's getting off on the sensuality, both of the action and just of these guys' bodies. And I don't know that you would have gotten that the same. I don't know that a male director would have thought of Keanu Reeves, yeah. you know, for that part. I think that's something that is what you get both for it being a woman and also just being for it being the woman being Catherine Bigelow, who happens to be one of the greatest directors in the history of movies. I mean, we could just go through the entire filmography, Blue Steel. I mean, we just talk about, yeah. I mean, uh, obviously for those, if the name's not super familiar to everybody, she did win Academy Award for 2009's The Hurt Locker for Best Director, ironically going up against Cameron, who was nominated for Avatar. I think we all knew which way that was going to go. I mean, the Hurt and The Hurt Locker, for those who don't know, was, was not a financially successful film by any stretch of the imaginations, but it, it's it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. So, so that was a movie that made both of our lists. I wonder if that will happen with any other films. Now, okay, so now, Jim, we're on to my number number five pick. Now, I know we're trying to stay away from CGI. I don't believe there is any CGI in this film. It came out in 1993. There might be if there is. I'm I I I'm hard placed to pick, you know, to figure out where it is, but there is a scene in 1993's Cliffhanger which is absolutely worth, like I say, the proverbial cost of admission. All right. Cliffhanger directed by Rennie Harlan starring Sylvester Stallone again. Somewhat simple plot. You have uh, Sylvester Stallone. He plays the character of Gabe. He is a mountain rescue guy who, uh, uh, I won't spoil the opening, has an incident which you know drives him off the mountain. He comes back. He's called back to action after a, a botched robbery goes wrong. And I'm just going to leave it at that as far as the plot goes. But there is a scene in this film which was 100% shot practically. And that is the hijacking of money between two airplanes that were shot at uh, an altitude of 15,000 feet. It was listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most expensive aerial shot ever done in movies. And that is not to diminish the rest of the film, which has got some spectacular stunt work in it. But... I would be doing myself a disservice if I did not include Cliffhanger on this list. Your thoughts on both Cliffhanger and Rennie Harland, who who could have made my list a few times. Yeah, well, I love this movie and I love Rennie Harland for sure. I mean, um, that the streak he had going from I mean, I'm actually a big Adventures of Ford Fairlane fan, but um, from Ford, he did Ford Fairlane and Die Hard 2 came out the same summer, I think. And um the streak he had from there that includes Cliffhanger and Long Kiss Goodnight, which is a great movie, and uh, uh, Deep Blue Sea, a lot of stuff. Um, great, you know, and, and and Cutthroat Island, which I think is very underrated, actually. Um, you know, great action director. Cliffhanger is maybe his best. Um, you know, just uh, kind of has a great, you know, you talk about the stunts, it's kind of got that great opening that's sort of like a, 90s action movie riff on vertigo where you know stallone kind of is le left figuratively hanging the way jimmy stewart is at the end of or the opening of vertigo um you know I, I will say with cliffhanger there are i there are some digital effects in it so you're cheating slightly but i'll give it to you because as you say this is kind of an example of what i was talking about in terms of like a movie that integrates them really well so that you don't necessarily know when you're looking at digital effects and as you say there are things in this movie there are huge set pieces that are not digital 
um, that are incredible. So I'll, so I'll give it to you, even though it's probably of, of the movies that have been on our list. It's the one that's got a little bit of, of that kind of stuff. But, um, but yeah, I love cliffhanger and, and it was one of the, you know, it's, it's one of my favorite Stallone movies, certainly one of my favorite Ernie Arlen movies and uh, just, you know, great rousing adventure film. And let's not forget, this was a, a comeback movie for Stallone because he had he, he had done some duds. We're talking uh, Oscar, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. I mean, he, need, he needed a comeback. And he had a, like a one-two punch with this and Demolition Man the same year. Yeah, let me just say it's not important for the purposes of this broadcast, but uh, Oscar is a great movie, even though it was a commercial failure. I, do, I, I, will, I will not abide anyone out there <laughs> saying anything bad about Oscar because it's a terrific movie. But... Um, uh yeah he was no i remember seeing the trailer for cliffhanger and you could feel in the audience people were kind of shocked that it looked good because stallone had become i don't know not a joke but just something people weren't nobody was looking forward to the next stallone movie the way they had a few years earlier um and cliffhanger definitely yeah brought him back and kicked off that whole mid-90s period where he was in a lot of big you know like you mentioned demolition man and the specialist came out in 94 and daybreak and all those movies that you know i mean again some of them are better than others but it put it cliffhanger put him back on the map as like he was an a-list action star again i am an unabashed fan of 1989's tango and cash and nobody can take that away from me that will come up in my next not it is not my next choice, but it will oh. come up in our discussion of oh. my next choice. OK, interesting. Very, very interesting. So, yeah, I just want to def, again reiterate what you said about Rennie Harlan. I have been I mean, I'm a huge Elm Street guy, know the franchise in and out. And up until Freddy's versus Jason in 2003, from what I what I know and what I understand, Elm Street 4 was the highest grossing of the entire franchise. It was, you know, what brought Freddy into the MTV generation. And that's that was all Rennie Harlan. That was made on a minuscule budget. So fantastic director. So now we're getting into crunch time. Now we're getting into the top four on the list. So, Jim, what is your number four movie? Yeah, now we get into where, you know, everything that we've had up until this point, uh, really, these are all there's a whole lot of other movies that could have gone on the list. Now we get into these top four are pretty much this is my Mount Rushmore. These are my top four somewhat set in stone. And number four is from 1985, starring starring and directed by Jackie Chan Police Story. Now, this is a movie that has been more shamelessly ripped off than just about any action movie ever made, including by Tango and Cash, Uh, Tango Cash, Michael Bay's Bad Boys 2, uh, many, many others. This was a film that really it's just first of all. So Jackie Chan, I'm sure many people are familiar with him. I don't know if everybody listening is familiar with his Hong Kong work or not. I mean, if your knowledge of Jackie Chan begins at rush hour, you're in for a treat because basically the irony is Jackie Chan came to America at exactly the moment when his talent kind of was waning. <laughs> I mean, I mean, not that he's not always great, but physically he wasn't up to what he had been doing. You know, in the seventies and eighties, Jackie Chan was his own best special effect. This is a guy who was willing to die for your entertainment. And um, one of the fun things about any of his movies, whether it's police story or project day or, you know, any any of these movies he made in the early 80s in Hong Kong, they have blooper reels at the end, but the blooper reels are all injury reels. They're basically like scenes of Jackie Chan and his fellow stuntmen nearly getting killed for your entertainment. And police, so this is a guy, Jackie Chan, he he, he did 
during this period, he did his own stunts and police story is wall to wall, one jaw dropping action sequence after another with Jackie, you know, he runs after a bus and sticks out an umbrella and with the umbrella handle catches onto the back of the bus and is like being flung through the air by the bus. There is, there are, he just jumps from, incredible height it's uh, it just i mean it's, it can't even really be described but it's basically you know the storyline is kind of a basic cop movie with jackie chan protecting this witness uh while everyone is trying to kill him and the witness and um it opens the, the movie opens with this car chase that michael bay flagrantly stole for bad boys 2 if you remember the scene in cuba bad boys 2 where the cars are going down the hill and crashing through all the poor people's houses I mean, it's practically a shot for shot ripoff of the opening of police story. And um, I could have chosen any number of Jackie Chan movies, frankly, for this slot. But I still think police story was kind of the one that where he really kind of solidified what his style was going to be in the 80s. I mean, you could make you could make the argument that police story three super cop actually has some even more spectacular stunts, I suppose, uh, with the train chase and things like that. But basically, you know, there's this climax in a shopping mall in police story uh, that again comes down to this is why practical can be so far superior to CGI is Jackie Chan, you know, he got to this shopping mall location and looked around and saw things that he could swing from and like where he could jump from one level down to an escalator and then where he could uh, string lights in a certain way that he could come fl flying down and stuff like that. And, you know, this is all stuff that he's figuring out on set. And John Woo used to do the same thing. And again, it's not something you're going to get from CGI. And really, it's not something you could get. You know, when Jackie Chan came to America, he was very frustrated because it was so much more regimented here. Um, and to some extent, cor correctly so, because uh, we didn't want to kill people the way that uh, they were willing to risk in Hong Kong. Um, but these these Hong Kong action movies of Jackie Chan, for people who haven't seen them, you've got to seek them out. I mean, Police Story and Police Story 2, well, the whole Police Story trilogy, Police Story, Police Story 2 and Super Cop, Police Story 3, uh, are just going to blow your mind if you haven't seen them. I find these movies to be incredibly anxiety-inducing only because <laughs> I know what you know, that that he, not only does he do, does his own stunts, but, I mean, I, and it's been a long time since I've seen this, which is the one where he's he's hanging from the rope ladder from the helicopter? That, that I think, is Blue Story 3 okay. Super Cop. Yeah. yeah. That, I can't even watch that scene because he doesn't even have a safety harness on yeah. in that scene. He yeah. is just hanging from that helicopter. Um, I can recall his first big American film, Rumble in the Bronx, and it felt subdued compared mm -hmm. to to anything previously that he's done. And you're right. If uh, Rush Hour is uh, is very tame as far as what you'd see in those police story movies. That's an excellent recommendation. And I, I can't believe I didn't even, I didn't even think to go to, 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 to that level there. So that's a great, <laughs> like I said, though, I, I have, I struggle to get through them only because it's like when you watch somebody on a tightrope, you know, you're just, you, you're, you're, ugh, it's great, great pick. So. Well, and I would say, and, and I'll say to people listening, if you want a primer on Jackie Chan, if you're not familiar with these movies, um, something that'll really whet your appetite is there was this British TV show in the eighties called eighties or nineties called the incredibly strange film show. And I don't know if you can find them on YouTube or anything like that, but they did an hour on Jackie Chan 
that goes through a lot of these movies and shows how he did these stunts and stuff. And it's absolutely amazing. You can get, it's on the police story, the criterion police story, Blu-ray that you can get, but it also might be on YouTube or something. And I actually saw that before I ever saw a Jackie Chan movie. I saw that special. and I was like, Oh my God, I've got to see these movies. And then when I moved out to LA, the new art here did a week of Jackie Chan movies and showed all of them before they were easily accessible on video here. And uh, it just completely blew my mind. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. So my number four, you know, when I first proposed the idea of this show to you, uh, coming out of Maverick, I was constantly telling people, you know, not since Mad Max Fury Road 2015 have I seen a movie that just uh, on a practical level had just gripped me so much. And I was like, I, I, I really just want to do a list of these practical movies. And, you know, I started back and forth with you via text. And I'm like, well, are we going to allow CGI? No, better not. Uh, let's let's try to be as pure as possible. I really want to include Fury Road on this. And then I'm like, well, wait a second. <laughs> I can still put a Mad Max film on this one. And how the hell am I going to do a list with practical stunts without including 1981's The Road Warrior, the sequel to the original Mad Max? I don't know how much more needs to be said about this film that hasn't already been said. But this one is also incredibly anxiety-inducing for me in, in a good way. And it is, to me, the purest of the four Mad Max films, in my opinion. I, I appreciate the original. Uh, Beyond Thunderdome is an interesting one because it's a PG-13 rated movie, so things are a little bit toned down in that film. But the world building that Miller has created throughout those movies is just incredible. But the, the climactic scene of the road warrior is just so intense that it almost makes you look away from the screen in some scenes. And I'm saying that in very, very positive ways. So I'm not sure if road warrior was on your list or not, but, uh, but it's definitely, it definitely made my number four. It's not on my list, but it could have, it's a great, yeah, it, it's great. And it was, uh, it definitely one that when I saw it, when it came out, was a total game changer. Um, and so, yeah. No, I'm, Can, I'm just, I'm a little too young to remember what it must have been like to have seen the original Mad Max and then see this in the theater. Like the, the well, jump. It was kind of backwards because in this country, I think Road Warrior actually came out first. I don't think Mad Max, I don't remember Mad Max. I could be wrong on this, but... In my memory, the original Mad Max didn't get a release or certainly not a big release in this country. It didn't get a lot. Whereas like Road Warrior was distributed by Warner Brothers. Like it was released as a big studio movie. And I think that's why, you know, I think that's why it was called the Road Warrior, because in Australia, it was just called Mad Max 2. And here, I think they call it the Road Warrior because they figured most people weren't going to know what Mad Max was. So I actually saw Road Warrior first. And then when Road Warrior was a hit, then they reissued Mad Max here. There was a um, I remember the ad campaign was they had the newspaper ads for Mad Max and said, see what made Max so mad. <laughs> um, and so in a way it was a slight, at the time it was a slight come down seeing Mad Max after Road Warrior because Road Warrior had been such a step up in ambition and resources and things. So when you went and saw Road Warrior first and then came to Mad, it actually took me a while to gain an appreciation for how great Mad Max was because of that. Um, so yeah, I saw Road Warrior first and, and I think most people in America did. Quick thoughts on Thunderdome. You know, I haven't seen Thunderdome since it came out, um, I have to admit. And I because I remember being mildly disappointed by it at the time um, or mildly bored by it. But I could have just been in the wrong mood that day. And Fury Road. And Fury Road's fantastic. All right. You know? And they just announced that they've begun production on Furioso, which I believe is a prequel to Fury Road. Uh, so listen. Never bet against George Miller. He's got another one no. coming out here. I just saw some previews for it. Him, looks, so. It looks incredible. Looks, yeah. looks really interesting. Okay. 
we're on to your number three. Okay, my number three might be a case where you can get at me a little bit like I got at you about Cliffhanger. This one is a slight cheat. It has a little bit of visual of digital augmentation, I think, but I'm justifying it being on the list because for the most part, it's all practical and the practical stuff that is in it is mind blowing. And it is Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof, um, which has a basically he kind of pays homage to all the 70s exploitation car crash movies like Race with the Devil and Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry and Vanishing Point but outdoes them all in this unbelievable car chase sequence with, you know, where one of the main characters spends a good time of it uh, tied to the hood of the car while she's being thrashed around and thrown around. And uh, absolutely some of the most amazing stunt driving and stunt work you'll ever see in a movie. So um, again, uh, according to the credits, that movie does have um, some digital artists on it. So I don't know what they did exactly because from, what I've been able to gather watching the making of stuff on the Blu-ray, it looks like all that car stuff was done for real. So, um, yeah, it's pretty, pretty impressive stuff. I, I will say this. This is, uh, if I remember correctly, this is 2007, I think. That sounds okay, right. 2007. Mm-hmm. So I was very amped up for this Grindhouse double feature that he was doing, Tarantino and Rodriguez. And I love the the faux trailers and the fact that one of them became an actual movie. But I will be honest, and I, I have – I remember – Maybe I need to revisit it, but the first movie, Planet Terror, did not particularly grab me, and I was not really having a good time with that movie. It was way too gory for my taste. Like it was just way more than I I I personally can handle. Maybe that's just me. And I remember when that movie was over, contemplating whether or not I wanted to stick around for the second movie because uh, for younger listeners, the Grindhouse was this. I don't want to say novelty, but it was this two movies. Each one is an hour and a half long with a few minutes of trailers, all one feature. And I remember going, I don't think I want to sit around for this next one. Maybe this will be a, you know, wait till it comes out on DVD and rent from Blockbuster. But I decided to stay. And boy, am I glad I did because I am right there with you. This is amongst, and we talked about this on our Tarantino retrospective. Like, this is one of my favorite Tarantino films. Like, this is... Amazing. And I sought out the standalone version, which I believe is about 30 minutes longer. This is an incredible film. I mean, it's chalk filled with every Tarantino cliche, but I don't recall a Tarantino film. I mean, I know Kill Bill's got some great stunt work, but not not anything that kept you on the edge of your seat as that, like you said, that lady being strapped to the hood of ah, it's that's a fantastic pick. That's one of those ones where I'm like, damn it, why didn't I think of that? That was <laughs> that was really good. Really good. I might be cheating again with my number three pick. All right? Because from what I understand, I know for I know one particular scene where they digitally edited out one small portion, one tiny thing. So if we're allowed to do a little bit of cheating, which I guess we, we've established that we are, then I have to go with 1994's Jan DeBont directed speed which we talked about keanu reeves starting to become an action star with point break speed was one of those event movies when it came out in 94 and it's one of those movies where you look at it today and you're like how on earth did this thing ever get filmed how did they ever even make this movie because it it literally looks like he uses more la than michael mann does in a movie like it's just everywhere (laughs) for those who've never seen speed the plot of the film is quite simple. 
there is a mad bomber who places a bomb on a bus. Once the bus hits 50 miles an hour, the bomb is armed. If the bus drops below 50 miles an hour, the bomb goes off. Keanu Reeves plays the, the police officer who is there to save the day. So you have Dennis Hopper, Keanu Reeves, and Sandra Bullock in the movie that made her a star. Action-packed, beginning to the end. The The digital part that I'm talking about is the section where the the bus jumps the overpass or jumps the missing part of the freeway. From what I understand, they they used a real bus, but it had a ramp, and they digitally removed the ramp. But that was still a real bus, so that gets all the uh, all the credit for me. Speed, what do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think I think he can get away with that one. Um, yeah, I mean the only reason this one didn't make my list is because I had a feeling it was going to be on your yeah. side. So I didn't want to waste <laughs> one of my slots. Um, <laughs> you know, it's 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 great. It's and Devont again. Great director who really only directed something like, like five movies or something. I don't know why he hasn't directed more stuff because he's uh, truly amazing. I actually think if I was a studio head uh, that if somebody I think the next logical movie to try to replicate the success of Top Gun Maverick with would be get Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock back together for a speed movie. Yeah. And if you did it right, I think it would be huge. Um, but yeah, it's uh again great choice great great effects great you know i I think it does qualify because even though there's a little bit of digital you know removal and things like that um the the stunt work and the miniature work and everything you know i mean i don't want to give anything away if people haven't seen it but but the movie kind of has these three movements to it and that the third movement that comes after you kind of think the movie's over is just incredible. And I, and like you say, I have no idea how they did some of that stuff uh, that, that where the movie ends up going. And I will say again, I don't want to ruin what happens, but I saw that movie opening night at the man Chinese theater, which plays very prominently in the climax. And I mean, the theater went insane when that <laughs> climax happened, uh, which begs yeah, the question. I, I can't believe I've never asked this of you before. Speed, let the world know that Los Angeles has a subway system. Have you ever ridden the subway in Los Angeles? I had never have. I've never been on it. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? You just, when you think of subway cities yeah. in America, you think of New York, yeah. you think of Chicago, you just don't think of LA. I never have. And it's the only reason I haven't is because I find their pricing system to be so convoluted and confusing like the couple of times i've looked into taking it places i couldn't even figure out how much it was going to cost or how i got a pass so i've never (laughs) taken it fair enough fair enough all right so we are on to your number two my number two is another blank check carte blanche movie and this is John Landis's The Blues Brothers from 1980, which was John Landis and John Belushi reuniting after Animal House, which was a huge hit. And so Universe and this one literally was a blank check movie. This was, I believe, one of the first movies. uh, The legend is that this was one of the first movies in Hollywood history that had no budget, that basically (laughs) Universal just said to John Landis, go make this. You're going to make a movie because. The Blues Brothers characters that uh, Belushi and Aykroyd had established on Saturday Night Live were, you know, like, like, again, this is a thing I'm always I I hate sounding like an old man where I'm like, you can't imagine. But you really can't imagine how huge all this stuff, how how huge Belushi was in 1980. Like when Belushi did the blues, like there was basically in the late 70s. Uh, John Belushi had the number one movie in America with Animal House. He had the number one, not the number one, but a hugely popular TV show with Saturday Night Live. 
And he had a multi-platinum album with the Blues Brothers briefcase full of blues albums. So the Blues Brothers were very popular from Saturday Night Live and from their album before um, there was they ever made this movie. And then making and then the combination of that with the fact that Belushi and Landis had done Animal House together to Universal a Blues Brothers movie was no brainers. They basically just gave Landis a blank check, said, go to Chicago and make this movie. And it was a massively expensive movie, but every dollar is on screen. The Blues Brothers has, uh, you know, a chase sequence. I mean, th this is like, you know, it's funny. I met John. John Landis was actually one of the first directors I ever met when I moved out to L.A. I wrote him a fan letter and sent him a copy of a paper I wrote on one of his movies for a film, a class at USC. And he actually wrote me back and invited me to the set of Beverly Hills Cop 3, which he was shooting oh. at the time. And when I was on the set of Beverly Hills Cop 3 with him, he like blew up this truck. And he looked at me at one point when he blew up the truck and he just said, you know those Lessis Moore guys? I'm not one of those guys. <laughs> and Blues Brothers is kind of the epitome of that. I mean, it is, if when there, whenever there is a car, you know, there's, if there's a car chase in the Blues Brothers, it is not, you know, a car chasing another car. It's 40 cars chasing another car. There is um, the moment where Blues Brothers, you know, I kind of credit Blues Brothers with actually being the movie that made me want to become a director. And I, and because there's a moment in Blues Brothers that is what made me want to become a director. Because I saw that movie, I was like eight years old when it came out in the theater. And there's a moment in the Blues Brothers that comes about 20 or 30 minutes in where there's the Blues Brothers are being chased by cops. And um, they're in a parking lot of a mall. And uh, Belushi says, you know, get us out of this parking lot. And Ackroyd says, you want out of this parking lot? Okay, I'll get us out of this parking lot. And then there's a cut to the inside of a toy store and their car comes crashing through. And you get this car chase with the cops chasing the Blues Brothers through a mall. And that cut of the car jumping through, the feeling of exhilaration I got when I saw that, I thought, I want to do that. That's what I want. That was the moment I knew I wanted to be a director and I've never had the chance to do anything like it, but that was the, that was the moment I knew. And, and so you've got in the blues brothers, you've got that sequence, this incredible se a car chase through a mall. That's amazing. You've got, you know, another crazy kind of, kind of crazy bridge jump that opens the movie with this car. There's all kinds of amazing car stunts throughout, but the real kind of um, thing that puts it into classic territory is this final chase scene that lasts something like a half hour and just it, it goes, they go through so many cars and so many trucks and so many, and it, it travels through so many parts of Chicago and it's just totally mind blowing and great and funny and uh, topped only by the movie that I have at my number one. That okay. We'll talk about in a minute. All right. Blues Brothers famously for me was a movie that I only watched for the first time a couple of years ago. It's another one of those that fell through the cracks uh, on the reoccurring series. We do the 20th Century Movie Club where we recommend movies released before the year 2000. Uh, one of my co-hosts uh, or actually I believe it was a guest we had Dylan Bruff was on and he recommended this movie. And I, you know, with my tail between my legs, had to announce to these two cinema aficionados that I was interviewing that I had, in fact, never seen the Blues Brothers that I, I sat down that night and watched it and I'm so glad I watched it when I did I'm so glad I watched it when I was in my 40s because you know there's already bitter me who's like it's all CGI I can't handle this anymore and I'm watching this film and I'm just going wow wow and I'm sure a couple WTFs came out of my mouth like how wow it's an incredible film it is an absolute incredible film and yeah 
it was a it was a consideration to put on my list. The only reason why it's not on my list is I've only seen it the one time, and I just didn't feel like I could speak to it as 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 well as as you certainly have. But um, I, I do ask the you know I'm allowed to ask follow up questions. They did ultimately make a sequel to this movie, and I'm just wondering where that film ranks as far as in the pantheon of Blues Brothers. I mean, I think the Blues Brothers 2000 was a worthy endeavor. I mean, look, the only reason they really made the sequel was because, you know, Aykroyd, the whole reason the first one got made is because Aykroyd, it was such an enthusiast about this music and really like his whole re- reason d'etre for making the movie was to showcase Aretha Franklin and James Brown and Ray Charles, you know, because it's it's an action comedy musical. So for people who haven't seen it, and it's great on all three of those levels. Like, it's a hilarious comedy. It's one of the greatest action movies ever made. And as a musical, you've got all those people I just named, plus John Lee Hooker. I mean, it's just like this kind of parade of great blues people. And Aykroyd wanted to do more movies because he basically wanted to showcase more of those people and add some people that they had. And then I think Blues Brothers 2000 is a good, it works on that level. It's a good showcase for the blues performances uh, as a movie. I mean, it doesn't hold remotely a candle to the first one. And it's, you know, they didn't have, first of all, they didn't have Belushi. I mean, they had John Goodman, who's great, um, but they didn't have Belushi and they didn't have the, the blank check. So it's much smaller in scale than the original is. So it's not, it's not really comparable. I mean, you know, I think I, I think, again, for, for what it, if you look at it as a somewhat um, if you look at it with reduced expectations and on a different scale, I think it's fine. But it's not certainly not one of my favorite John Landis movies and certainly not uh, anywhere close to what the first one is. Um, and I just want to reiterate, I mentioned that I like to watch William Freakin interviews that are archi- archived on YouTube. I, the same thing uh, applies for John Landis. If you've ever watched uh, it, where he's being interviewed in front of an audience, they're damn entertaining he is nutty and i mean that as a compliment he is off Mm -hmm. the wall so we could probably again do an episode just on his his career that's for sure yeah he's one of my favorite he's probably if i'm being honest you know like when i talk about favorite directors and everything if you threw me on a desert island and said you can only take the movies of one director with you it might be john landis he might be the one i would take he yeah i agree i agree all right my number two film this is going to be a no-brainer Anyone who knows me knows I'm a huge James Cameron fan. Obviously, I had to stay away from, I had to stay away from The Abyss. I had to stay away from Terminator 2. It pains me that I had to stay away from True Lies because that is, that's arguably one of my favorite Cameron movies. I love True Lies, Titanic, and of course, Avatar's out. So that only leaves me with a couple. The man's only made seven movies. It leaves me with 1986's Aliens, which from start to finish is just an absolute masterpiece. I'll admit there are a couple, like you said, rear projection screens you can see that don't hold up, but those are, like there's two in the entire movie, and that is it. It is a masterclass in action, in tension, uh, in, in, and the set design, the production design, everything feels tactile, real, lived in, the puppeteering. It's a damn near perfect movie that I have made an argument could be released in 2022 as is in theaters and would probably have just as much impact as it did in 1986. I'm just going to ask you to to go back to 1986. You're, you're a couple years older than me and just let me understand what it must have been like to see this movie when it came out. Coming off the heels of Ridley Scott's masterpiece, Alien. Yeah, it was great. I mean, and, and well, and, and not only coming off of Alien, but coming off of the Terminator, which, you know, the Terminator, that's one that I don't know if, if it's possible for people who weren't alive and you didn't see in the theater to understand 
what a mind blower that was because you didn't really when the terminator came out none of us really expected you know it was a low budget movie really um and was not and schwarzenegger had done conan but he wasn't the star he was and so the terminator was real there was a sense of discovery with that movie that was incredible i mean i'll never forget seeing terminator in the theater for, for the first time and then so after that then it was like oh wait a second so now this guy who made the terminator he's doing an alien movie um what's you know what's that going to be so the expectations were huge and the movie didn't disappoint the only reason i i disqualified it from my list only because i felt like uh if i opened the door to practical effects involving creatures it was going to uh, open the, the just uh, the floodgates were going to open and then it's like well do i have john carpenter's the thing do yeah. i do american werewolf in london do i do the exorcist whatever so i kind of i kind of had to create limitation artificial limitations or arbitrary art limitations for myself that's the only reason aliens isn't on my list because i agree with you it's one of the few movies that you really could probably release today and would pro i i, I think it would still work the same way on a contemporary audience even if they thought it had been made today yeah, no, it looks it looks visually stunning. I just I'm absolutely in love with that movie. All right, drum roll. We are on to your number one pick. For my number one, uh, and this is a movie that a lot of people I think nowadays are not familiar with, even though it was a huge hit when it came out, and it is unquestionably the number one. This the number one was no a no brainer for me. This is from 1974, uh, directed by the great underrated Richard Rush starring James Caan and Alan Arkin Freebie and the Bean Freebie and the Bean is uh, for people who are not familiar with it which I think these days again is a lot of people even though at the time it was a massive hit you're looking at, uh, I'm Free- sorry you're looking at one. yeah um, Freebie and the Bean was it was a huge hugely popular movie at the time but for whatever reason it's kind of been forgotten um, but it's the movie that sort of set the template for everybody cop movie that came after I mean you don't have without Freebie and the Bean you don't have Lethal Weapon. You don't have 48 Hours. You don't have whatever, you know, Stakeout, all of them. Uh, this is the movie that created it. But more importantly, this is the work of complete madness in terms of what they were willing to do for your entertainment. It is a it's so it's Alan Arkin and James Caan as uh, a pair of cops in San Francisco who and this movie i'm not sure you know coming out to the first time today let me say you got to watch this movie you got to bring your sense of humor you've got to leave real life at the door because in the age of a lot of our social issues this is not a film the behavior of these cops in this film i guess you know today would be looked at as basically fascism i mean it is a movie where james Caan and alan arkin they they these are two cops who are willing to destroy the entire city in order to achieve even the most minor goal they will they will shoot people in the back they will drive through people's houses they will do whatever and you uh, again if you take it seriously i suppose it's it's not all that much fun but if you go into it with your sense of humor it is an absolute blast because it is so liberating this is a movie that could not be made today for all kinds of reasons but basically they destroy the city of San Francisco making this movie. If you think about what the Blues Brothers does to Chicago and ratchet it up exponentially and exponentially to the power of 10, you can get some idea of what Freebie and the Bean is. I mean, these car chases look and and they look more dangerous than anything in a Jackie Chan movie. I don't know how no I don't know how no one was killed during the making of this thing. I don't know how they got away with it. I don't know what the permitting situation was like. 
but they drive. I, there are so many close calls where it looks like they're going to hit people. It looks like they are driving through. I, I mean, if this stuff is all staged, if it is all stunt people and professional actors and extras, it is the most amazing filmmaking I've ever seen in my life. Cause it looks like there's a lot of people who just happen to be nearby on the street <laughs> while they are having these insane car chases. And, um, and again, just like driving cars off of huge parking structures and through buildings and uh, just, it's just, it's nonstop. It is a movie of glorious excess in every way. And it's hilarious and it's incredible action. And it is a movie. I I can say it is, it's one of those rare movies that I can say, you cannot set your expectations too high. It will exceed them. And it's a movie I've never heard of. And that sells you right there. You have a treat ahead of you. I am so excited. You want to talk about something being bumped to the top of the list of what I'm going to watch tonight. I mean, I was hopeful that during this conversation, you might introduce a couple movies to me. But to think that your number one pick is a film that I I, and I I like to think I'm pretty well versed in in cinema. You know, I mean, my my stronger points go 80s, 90s and, and above. I've got a good handle on 70s, I'd like to think. But. The fact that your number one is something I've never heard of. And you mentioned that it was a massive success when it came out. This is Khan coming off of The Godfather, right? Yeah. I don't know why it's been forgotten. I really have no idea why. I mean, it's again, it's very dated in some ways. And it's it's certainly like a lot of the the, you know, the racial humor that, you know, everything, race, sex, homophobia. I mean, it's very much a product of its time in that regard. Um, but, you know, so is Dirty Harry. And that movie's yeah. not forgotten. So I don't know. I don't really know why it's been forgotten because it was Khan coming off of the Godfather and it was justifiably very, very popular when it was released. Who directed it? Uh, Richard Rush, who is a fantastic director, okay. also directed the stunt man, which is another okay. could have also been on. Yeah. Could have okay. also been on my list. I don't think I've been this excited for a movie in a long time. I am. I am just, I, I consume these type of films. Like I can't wait. And I, and you know, you've, you've given me purposely vague about the plot of the film. But you've given me the the uh, the ingredients, so I I'm excited about the idea that I'm going to watch a movie that's a product of its time, and I am a proponent of films like that. There are plenty of movies that I love from the '80s that just couldn't be made today, couldn't be screened today. But I, I still am a big fan of them. All right, so this is the part where I tell you that when coming up with my list, I get a little neurotic about putting lists together sometimes because I always feel like I'm going to miss something. I'm going to miss something. So I reached out to a mutual friend of ours, Phil Juano, who uh, actually I have you to thank for the introduction. And, and, and like yourself, Phil has been on the show numerous times and we do chat a couple times a month. And I mentioned to him last week that I was doing this list. And immediately he texts back, well, Lawrence of Arabia has to be on the list, has to be number one. And I said, well, you know, it's 70s or 70s on up. He goes, well, what's on your list? And so I started sending him. He goes, yep, that's good. Still not number one. I sent him another one. Yep, that's good. Still not number one. I said, I think I'm going to make Road Warrior my number one. He goes, nope, that's not number one. And I said, well, what is number one? And he sent me what he considered to be his number one practical effect action movie. And it was one that I remember watching 30 years ago, way too young to even, even begin to appreciate it. So I sat down and I watched the film and my jaw was utterly on the floor 
during a particular sequence of this film. And I said, you know what? Phil's right. This, this has to be my number one because there's no way on in hell you're going to pull this off practically in 2022. You're never going to be able to pull this off CGI. I'm talking about 1979's Apocalypse Now. And that entire Flight of the Valkyrie scene, just alone, forget the rest of the movie, which is incredible, but that entire scene right there, it created a call to action. I I sought out the 1990 documentary Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse, to learn as much as I could. How Francis Coppola is still alive after making this movie, I, I don't know. But I watched the movie and then immediately watched it again. And it's arguably become one of my favorite movies of all time upon, you know, this reviewing it or rewatching it as as an adult. Uh, How do you make a movie like that today? Do you? Can you ever make a movie like that? I mean, it's incredible. So it's my number one pick, Apocalypse Now. Thank you, Phil Juano. He, He did guide me in the right direction there. Well, it's a great number one pick, and I'm embarrassed that it wasn't on my list now because it was just one I totally forgot. And I have no excuse because if I were to tilt my camera, you could see that I have the poster for it on my wall over there. So uh, I, you know, I I have no excuse for forgetting it, but it's, yeah, for all the reasons you say, um, it is a movie I I don't think, I don't know that that'll ever happen again. I don't know that you'll ever get, and it's interesting, I mean, and, and one movie I also did think about putting on my list um, which is in, in has some parallels with Apocalypse Now, although it's not as well regarded and certainly wasn't as successful in its time, uh, is Heaven's Gate. Yeah. And in both cases, with Heaven's Gate and Apocalypse Now, I don't think those circumstances could be replicated. I don't think that you, you know, I, I just don't know that you you would have the perfect storm in both of those cases of directors who were coming off of big successes where they had the resources to try stuff like that, but also were a little mad. I mean, both Coppola and Chimino, guys who I revere, both slightly insane. Um, You know, I, I, and just like, I feel like today someone would stop them. Like it would not. So I don't know. Somehow I just don't know that, you know, Coppola or Chimino being under those circumstances would be allowed to keep going. And, um, and it's a shame in a way, because I, I do think I, yeah, I just don't, I don't know that you'll ever get something like apocalypse now. I mean, I read an interview with Ethan Hawke where he was talking about doing the Northman which was a movie that was done under some pretty arduous conditions. And he was saying that, you know, well, to him, it was like, uh, you know, he wanted to do it to do a movie like they did Apocalypse Now. And it's like, well, come on. I mean, this isn't anything. It's not even one tenth the conditions that they did Apocalypse Now under and the lack of control and the scale and everything else. And uh, yeah, it's one of my favorite movies too, obviously. Like I said, I've got the poster on my wall here. I mean, the only reason i might not say it's one of my 10 favorite movies of all time is that i might like the godfather 2 a little more yeah. you know as far as coppola stuff goes um but yeah incredible great choice should have been on my list so i'm glad that uh phil put it on yours well that's why i reached out to him because i'm like i'm gonna miss something i'm gonna miss something that that's that it needs to be on here um side note paramount plus has a show right now called the offer which is all about the the making of the godfather as I'm watching this show, all I'm saying to myself is I would rather see a miniseries about the making of Apocalypse Now 
that's just my personal preference. So I will say the guy they got the guy they have playing Coppola is pretty good, but the show mm-hmm. itself is I don't I don't know what your thoughts are on that show, but if you've seen it or I'm, not, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna save those for off the record. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I don't want to say on yeah. I don't want to say what I thought of. Actually, actually, when we go off the record, I've got a couple of things to say too. So, um, I had a great time doing this one. This was fun putting this list together. I'm so excited to check out uh, a few of these movies that I've never seen before. This is going to be a big deal. Like Freebie and the Bean. Like I'm, as soon as we're done, I'm like, all right. I'm sure this is on iTunes. I can find this. I can rent this. I'm sure it's readily available. Or is it? That's the question. I, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it's on iTunes and stuff like that. I have it on Blu-ray, so um, I think you can. It's. I don't think it's on like anything free. I don't think it's on Netflix or any Hulu or any of those. But uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's on iTunes. And I just, you, you know, I know I don't have to tell you this, but anybody listening, if you watch it, don't shut your phone off. Yeah. Look at the screen. Don't take your eyes off the screen because you will miss stuff like it's just once that movie gets rolling again it's action sequences just have to be seen to be believed they will wait. blow your mind i'm so excited they will blow your mind so uh, i guess the one you know i will i will say one thing i would say about freebie the being a little disclaimer i'll give for contemporary audiences watching it <laughs> because i i showed it to, to uh kelly goodner and she had never seen it and she her mind was pretty blown by it but she was a little confused for the first act or so by the fact that we're supposed to think that Alan Arkin is a Latino character. So um, it, that, that is, is Alan Arkin is not the most convincing. He's supposed to be Mexican, um, not the most convincing casting of a Mexican character. So if you're wondering in the first half hour, why James Kahn keeps making disparaging remarks to Alan Arkin about his ethnicity, it's because Alan Arkin is supposed to be Mexican. So Again, in terms of my saying, this movie is a product of its time. And if you're going to enjoy it, you kind of have to just uh, make allowances for that. Uh, but know that going in, because Kelly was like about 15 minutes in the movie. She looked at me. She's like, wait a second. <laughs> she's like, am I supposed to think Alan Arkin is Mexican? <laughs> and I said, yes, you are. And then she was able to understand what was going on in the movie. But yeah, okay. it's, uh, so <laughs> take that in as you go in. Well, we're on a three hour time delay. So a time difference. So when I'm done with it this evening, I'm sure it will still be relative early mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm i promise you i will text you my reaction yeah I, I will be very curious to hear your thoughts so uh jim if people want to keep up with you social media website all that good stuff how can they do that yeah i guess twitter is probably still the still the best uh, twitter i'm jimmy hempel on twitter and that's probably I'm, I'm i'm sporadically active you know it depends on my it depends on the week but that's uh, probably the best way to find me and uh, as far as your work with IndieWire how often can we uh, look forward to to pieces from you uh, that stuff is now starting to go up a couple of times a week okay. two or three times a week so yeah if you go to if you go to IndieWire and just search Jim Hemphill I've got an author page on there that'll take you to all this stuff perfect perfect excellent well thank you so much for being on the show I know this will not be the last time I think we've already planted the seeds of a couple other episodes just from this discussion <laughs> so I, I really appreciate I know you're a busy guy so thank you for taking the time out to to chat with me my pleasure and uh, for those listening if you want to follow me on social media I'm available on Twitter at Dana Buckler Show. I'm on Instagram at the Dana Buckler. And you can send me an email, the Dana Buckler Show at gmail.com. So for everyone out there, for Jim Hempel, my name is Dana Buckler, and we'll talk to you later. Thank you.